Okay, friends, if you have a Bible, would you please grab it and turn with me to Romans 14. Romans 14. Would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word together. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Grass withers and the flowers fade. This is the word of the Lord, and it stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. On September 2nd, 1859, a man named C.F. Herbert was mining for gold in southeastern Australia. And in the sky, he saw something that literally knocked him to the ground. He saw lights of indescribable beauty filling the night's sky he saw these amazing luminescence fall across the horizon. He saw things that were brighter than he has ever seen next to the largest bonfire. His entire surroundings lit up as he was mining. Rationalists and secularists and the religious alike in 1859 thought that Armageddon had come that day. They cried out for help. They cried out in agony. And we know now that that is called the Carrington Effect, what they saw that evening. The Carrington Event was when 100 tons of solar ray came and hit the higher metosphere of the, of the Earth, the part of the atmosphere that protects the Earth from the sun's rays. And bouncing off the higher atmosphere of Earth sent these incredible luminescence across the night sky. We know them sometimes as southern lights or as northern lights. They're a, small, they're a small sample of what they saw with the Carrington event back in 1860. It was the largest event of northern or solar light they've ever seen in history, ever recorded in history. There's a man named Tony Orb who recently wrote a book called Precipice. He tells the story of C.F. Herbert, and Precipice is all about what Tony Orb, who is this brilliant Ivy League sociologist and researcher, says are the most devastating things that could potentially happen to people on planet Earth today. And he boils them down to three things. Number one, a geomagnetic event that shuts down the entire electric grid. Something akin to what they saw back in 1860, when in that day telegraphs took on a life of their own without being plugged in, being able to send messages all over the world that made no sense because of the electromagnetic power that came from the rays of the sun. The second thing Orb talks about is he talks about a great volcanic eruption that could, in a very real way, potentially wipe out humanity as we know it. The third thing he talks about in this book are pandemics. And it's these three things that he says that they, at national security levels, always run tests on every so many years to test in game theory what exactly we would do as a country if one of these three things happened. Listen, this time 
is incredibly confusing and difficult and challenging. We're all like people on a river trying to figure out what is around the bend. Like if you, if you come with me to Almont, Colorado, and, and, you, and you want to like become a river rafting guide, like some of us saw if you've been to Colorado this summer, you know to be a river rafting guide that you have to learn behind somebody who has 1,500 hours or 1,500 river miles teach you exactly how to navigate through the changing of the tide and the rocks and to know what's around the bend and to memorize the river so that you can take your clients down the river safely, whether it's the Colorado or the uh, Arkansas or the Taylor River. The problem is we are all trying to learn how to be river guides, and there's nobody with 1,500 hours of experience to guide us, is there? And so here we are. And never, at least in my time of ministry, never more is there a threat of secondary issues to divide the church than today. And so, we're going to look at Romans 14. And we're going to look at four principles and five action steps that we must take as a church in order for us to begin to navigate the waters that we see before us. Why? Because our witness as a church, as Trinity as Hope in Bartlesville, as Through Rivers and Grove, our witness as the church largely depends upon how we apply Romans 14 during these days. Gandhi said that he loved Jesus Christ, but he would never believe in them because he saw the actions of Christians. What an amazing opportunity we have now to walk with all the different opinions about how we navigate these days with one voice, as Paul says, in Romans chapter 15. So, we're going to dive in and look at it together. Four principles, five action steps. First, the context. Romans, if you're a student of Scripture, you'll know that Romans basically is about, uh, it's about four subjects. 1 to 321 is basically about the wrath of God. 321 through the very end of 8 ends at verse 39 is about the grace of God. 9 through 11 of Romans is about the plan of God, and then 12 through the rest of the book is about the will of God. And so when you come to Romans chapter 14, you are smack dab into a part of Romans where Paul is telling people what, therefore, is God's will in light of the amazing grace he's given to his people. And when he gets to chapter 14, he says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. What do you mean weak in faith? The weak in faith doesn't mean that your faith is of less value or that you, you have a, somehow you have like a, a weaker um, quantity of faith. In the context, what Paul is talking about is that there were some people in the church, Jews who had come to Christ, who still believed that they must cling to the old Jewish rites of diet. And so they said, we will not eat meat. We will still abide by the kosher laws. And Paul says, being one of the strong ones in faith, he says to the strong, to the meat eaters in the church, and some of you guys can say, amen, the meat eaters are the strong ones, right? The vegetarians were the weak ones. He says to the strong, welcome those who are weak in faith. Welcome those whose conscience is particularly sensitive to the way they choose what they eat but do not quarrel over opinions. He later in verses 4 begins to talk about days. Some people in the church prefer certain Jewish days to keep. Don't quarrel over opinions. 
They're the weak in faith. And Paul here is addressing the age-old issue of legalism on one hand and license on the other. And he's bringing them both together. Legalists are people who want rules about areas that are gray in Scripture. Does God's Word give you incredible wisdom for every area of life? Yes, it does. But does God's Word give you an instruction, give you instruction for how to navigate every area of life in every circumstance? No, it does not. And we must not confuse God's Word, which teaches us about how we are to have a right relationship with Him and grow in grace for a manual for how to handle every particular situation because Paul clearly tells us that there were people in the church that were divided over what to eat. And Paul says, let that not be a matter that differentiates you from others. The big word that we give to that is a word called adiaphoria. It's a Greek word that means awe without. Diaphoria means to differentiate. And so we shouldn't differentiate based upon preferences that are secondary matters, whether it's diet or whether it's observing particular days. And in the church, this is, you can think of all kinds of examples, can't you? Let's just let's name them in your mind, right? Movies, makeup, dancing, two-piece bathing suits, drinking, I hear that. What else? Call it out. Masks. Whoa, there you go. All kinds of examples that we can think of. And so it's important that we do not let secondary issues divide us. In our ability as a church to recognize that we are united in the strength of Christ and that there's freedom to exercise different perspectives and different opinions doesn't, shouldn't frustrate us. It should make us actually that much bold in our witness to the world. Because where else do you have a group of people who are as diverse as we are with our preferences come together under one banner? Nowhere. The church is the most diverse organization in the world, and that is part of its public witness. If you have ears to hear, and if you have hearts that are soft enough to obey. So, later on, Paul gives us what is um, our principle. He says, number one, that you should welcome those who disagree on matters of indifference. That's Romans 14, verses 1 and verses 3. Verse 3. We should welcome those who differ from us on matters of indifference or adiaphoria. The legalist does not like the gray areas of life at all. They like things black and white. And in this case, these Jews who had recently been converted, they were the legalists in the setting. They were the ones who said, we must have a rule of exactly what we should eat. And Paul says, no, you're free to eat. Everything is clean. You're not bound by the Jewish law anymore with regard to what you shall eat, the ceremonial law. Enjoy them. And yet, Paul says to the strong, those whose consciences weren't seared by what they ate, be careful that you welcome them. The tendency in the church toward whatever secondary issue you might want to choose is that the strong begin to look down upon the weak and the weak begin to judge the strong. That's why three times in Romans 14 and down through 15, verse 7, it says, do not judge, do not judge, do not judge. Why would you judge? You don't judge the servant of another person. 
Who are you to judge? The Lord is the one who judges us. To judge one another about issues of secondary importance is a little bit like if I were to go to research and somebody were to check me out. And I just, I just happen to not like the way they check me out. So I go to the manager's office and I get an evaluation form and I fill it out for the person who checks me out and I give it to them. That's not my place to do that. I'm not her boss. I'm not his boss. The Lord is our boss. And who are we to judge our brothers on issues of secondary importance when the Lord himself is the one who judges? First one, you should welcome those who disagree with you because of matters of secondary importance. Now notice what else, verse 13 of chapter 14. It says, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but let us rather never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Liberty should not be used as a stumbling block to another Christian. Your Christian liberty should not be used as a stumbling block to another Christian. Let's take alcohol as an example, shall we? When Paul talks about the way we are to use our Christian liberty in the context of a church, he is talking about people who have no problem enjoying the good gifts of God in a responsible way that honors him. That would be the strong in this context. The weak in this context would be those people whose conscience is not comfortable drinking alcohol. So, if you choose to not drink alcohol for health reasons, wonderful. If you choose to not drink alcohol because you've seen the devastating effects that alcohol, alcohol can have on people because they get addicted to much wine, wonderful. But that is not the basis of Paul's argument here. It's a great wisdom decision, but that's not what Paul commands in chapter 14. What Paul is talking about is you should not drink around a person whose conscience, whose conscience does not allow him to drink because he thinks it is wrong. Do you see the difference? And so we as Christians are to be tender to the conscience of another brother who is weak in faith, that is, who has a tender conscience about something in particular, and we are to abstain in certain situations in order for us not to tempt or coerce that brother to do something against his own conscience. It is not to do it because we're afraid that we're going to tempt him to uh, somehow drink and see your example and drink too much. That's a wise decision, but that is not what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 14. He is talking about people who have a particular conscience about an area of life, and we are to respect that, and we are to see it, and we are to abstain in certain practices in order to not force them to violate their conscience. Do you see the nuance in that? So we should, our Christian liberty should not be used as a stumbling block to another. Third, our Christian liberty should never be flaunted. Notice what he says in verse 22 of chapter 14. Do not for the sake of food, verse 20, destroy the work of God. It's not as though that your actions could destroy God's work, but your actions could so... Um, tempt a brother or sister whose conscience is tender in that area to go against their conscience. That's what Paul means by destroy the work of God. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself 
and God. So, um, if there's a sensitive situation in our church, then we are to be the ones who keep that between ourselves and God and show respect and deference to others. One of, the, one of the great examples of this, I think, played out this week when um, the ladies were, were texting each other this week. And, and, and one of the ladies said something about masks. They said, hey, like, you know, for this reason, I think we should all wear masks. And another lady said, well, I, I hear you, but I respectfully disagree. And they, and they gave their reasons. And I invite anybody to coffee who wants to come have coffee and talk about it. It was great. And they had a good conversation about it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And when, when, if we are mandated by those who are in governing authorities over us soon enough to have to all wear masks, then it will be a different question because then it becomes a question of Romans 13 and submitting to the governing authorities. But it is very important to recognize that freedom as a right is not to be our guide. That is love's purpose. I'm going to say that again. Freedom as a right is not to be our guide. That is love's purpose. Our right should be laid aside for the sake of love of your brother or your sister. So that your motivation and everything that you do is not your rights. What, what rights as a Christian should we have? We, we've given up our rights. But because so many people have confused their politics with what Christianity is about, they begin to live according to rights. Our right should not be a guide for our behavior. Our love should be. And we should be the first ones who give up our rights for the sake of another. We shouldn't put a stumbling block in another brother's way to impinge upon their conscience something of which the scriptures don't clearly speak. We should not flaunt. We should welcome those who disagree with us. And then fourth, Christian liberty should be used not merely to please ourselves. What we do, always, always motivated as we are, is going to be, in some sense, pleasing ourselves. But we are to act as Christians in a way that puts our brother first. Where in your equation for making decisions about matters that are gray in Scripture, where do you put the other person in that equation? Paul says you should put them first. And that your context is always part of that equation. And other people's particular conscience, as you need to know them, should be part of that equation. So that we are people who don't defend our own rights, but we are quick to rush to defend the rights of others. We are Christians who don't demand our right. We, we, we rush to help the other, even if it means we lose our own rights. Why? Because we operate according to to the principle of love. When I was uh, preparing to, to uh, preach after Scott you know, preached for us the last four weeks and I was listening to the sermons, I thought, you know, we need to talk about this as a family together because there are many, many dear brothers and sisters who are home that are watching online, but they're not home because they're watching because they're fearful. They're watching because they're trying to be wise and they don't feel like it's the right time for them to come back to worship. And they're operating by the principle of love. And if you're home and you're watching from worship because you're fearful only about your own physical health and about you particularly getting sick and you don't really care about the others, well, then there's room for you to walk and grow in repentance. 
And Paul would have something to say to you in that. And those of us who are here, right? We're not here because we don't care about our health. We're, we're managing our social distancing. We're wearing masks together. Why? Because we want to worship. There's something powerful being in the presence of one another in worship, right? Amen? And so we sacrifice and we care and we risk in order to be in in-person worship. And we're motivated by love, too, because we want to encourage each other and let each other see each other's pupils and hear our voices. And so whether we're at home or whether we're here, we can be motivated by the principle of love, yes. We could also be motivated by selfish ambition. And so you do not know, and you should not judge, but you should encourage each other all the more as you see the great day approaching. And so what are the ways that we can do that? There are five actions that we as a church need to take. Number one, welcome those whose faith is weak. Move toward each other. Number one, move toward one another. I don't mean physically. (laughs) I mean emotionally. I mean in your communication. I mean in your encouragement. I mean in your love. If you're in a community group in this church, have you talked to other people in your community group since March? If you have it, what if you just sent them a text? Oh, I don't want to bother them. No. It would be a blessing to them just to hear from some, even if it's a totally random text, to say, hey, I was thinking about your family, just praying for you guys. Anyway, I can pray for you. Move toward the other person. It's especially true when you disagree over an issue. Secondly, Ask questions. Never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. How do you know if that's a stumbling block? You ask questions together. Listen. Get to know them. Paul also says in verse uh, 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Sympathize with their position. Move toward each other. Ask questions. Sympathize with their position. Put yourself in their shoes. Listen. Fourth, know your blind spots. You sympathize with the feelings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Know your blind spots. Know the reason for why Christ came. He died for you to help you get to know yourself better. And COVID only gives us the opportunity to learn ourselves better because we're under duress in ways that we've not been. Know your blind spots and recognize that you too have weaknesses in areas that you are not applying the gospel. A case in point of the application is that the Jews are the weak ones in Romans chapter 14, right? In 1 Corinthians 8, there's another issue about food that is sacrificed to idols. And in that case, Paul writes the exact same exhortation. Don't let food d- d- uh, divide you. But who is the weak and the strong in that case? The weak are the Gentiles in that case. The weak are the ones who thought that food sacrificed to idols would somehow pollute them. And Paul says, no, food is just food. And the Jews in Corinth had appropriated the gospel in that area in ways that the Gentiles had not. So in one case, the Jews are the weak. and In another case, the Gentiles are the weak. We have blind spots. We have to recognize what those are. And lastly, see the big picture. 
move toward each other, ask questions, sympathize with their position, know your blind spots, and five, see the bigger picture. Verse four, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, which give us all we need for life and godliness. But doesn't answer every question. It provides wisdom for us to navigate gray areas of life, like to or not to wear masks, like should you go to this or that movie, like should you or should you not drink alcohol, like you fill in the blank. That we may have, what's the word that Paul uses there? Hope. Our hope as a church is that we can love, encourage, strengthen, and exhort each other in these days in a way, in a context that is unlike any other. Would you do it? For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me. And the day that Christ died, the sky went dark, just like it did in 1860, but it was a far greater darkness. The darkness that covered our hearts. And Christ's sacrifice for us was like the rays of the sun blasted against the outer shell of planet Earth when love rained down on Earth. And God calls us as a Christian church to be the aurora, to be the quarantine effect right now, to be the lights, to be the luminescence of the world that caused people literally to fall over and go, whoa. Something different is at play here. And in the chaos of the world, it is the church and it is the love, the exercise of love, not rights, of love that causes us to truly be the light of the world. Can we do that? Yes and amen, we can. Would you? Welcome those who are weak in faith in matters of secondary importance. Do not flaunt your liberty. Do not please yourself, but serve others. And lastly, do not put a stumbling block in your brother's way. Move toward one another. Ask questions. Sympathize with their position. Know yourself better. And see the bigger picture. And 2020 is just an exhausting year, isn't it? I mean, April seemed like forever. The year started out like 1974. And then the year quickly became 1918. And then it became 1929. And then it became 1968. And now we're kind of in the middle of all those at once. It's a unique time in history. See Christ who bore our reproach and lean on him so that we might be the luminescence of the world. And people might see the behavior of Christians as they differ on matters of secondary importance. And they might move toward one another in love. Even if you vehemently agree with, disagree with somebody, move toward them with love and exercise those five action steps. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to lead the way in talking about difficult issues with love and care and sympathy and listening ears. Help our ears to be bigger than our mouths and help our hearts to be biggest of all, 
within the context of your local church. Help us to love one another well. Father, help us to allow love to be our motivation. Lord, help us to bear with the failings of those whose conscience differ than ours on matters of secondary importance. Help us to love our neighbor, to build them up. And help us, Father, to be motivated not by our exercise of rights, but to be motivated by the love of the Lord Jesus who bore our reproach for us. And in this way, Father, let us be like little Christs for the world. Would you strengthen us, we pray, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen and amen.